Good evening, everybody. The other evening, a couple evenings ago, the people sitting up here on the dais, we were hanging out in the teacher's room after the evening talk, and as we were wont to do, and talking about the retreat, and somehow the subject got on to, uh, that we came to was the subject of happiness. We were all kind of marveling that we were confessing that we were all generally happy. <laughs> Imagine that. And had been for quite some time. And then we started wondering, well, how come we don't ever talk about very much about happiness on this path? We spend quite a bit of time talking about suffering, that's for sure, and the obstacles and the vicissitudes of the path, but we don't, we don't say so much about happiness. It's such a personal thing. One of my union psychology teachers used to say to me, Robert, Happiness takes the most courage of all because as soon as you have it, you can lose it. Of course, that's true of everything. But when you reflect on that, it's, it, is, it is courageous to be happy. And we don't talk about it so much. What is happiness? what makes us happy. Usually, in the ordinary world, people think of happiness as what comes when you get a new car or a new television set. Or you like your job, finally. Or, you know, or there's a new relationship in your life. Happiness for most people, comes from outside. And also it has this quality of being quite fleeting. It doesn't seem to last very long. been reflecting on life and the way it's been the last few years and wondering, well, Knowing the insecurity and the impermanence of, of material things, I don't rely on that world for my happiness. Where, where does it come from? I think all of us agreed in this conversation that our happiness comes from this practice, from this path, this journey that we all share. I've been reflecting on, well, okay, what is it about the, the journey, the, this practice, that brings happiness? 
So he started studying the subject, which is kind of oxymoron to study happiness. But and and going through the some of the literature that was available to me, I came up with the information that in Theravada Theravada Buddhism there are three kinds of happiness. Of course, there would be a list, right? <laughs> Even for happiness. <laughs> First happiness is the happiness of sensual pleasures. Although fleeting, it also is a very sweet kind of happiness. And it comes to us as a result of some purity of conduct. Generosity, as I was speaking of the other night, practicing generosity. Or moral restraint. It's the kind of happiness that comes through the senses, sensual delights. The happiness that arises when you see a beautiful piece of art, visual happiness. Or the happiness that comes when listening to lovely music, beautiful sounds, or even I get a lot of happiness listening to the birds in my garden. They sing to me. Or the kind of happiness that comes from waiting for dinner and you smell that great smell of fresh baked bread in the kitchen. The kind of happiness that comes from Feeling good in the body. Pleasurable sensations. Being touched well, beautifully, lovingly. By a friend. The sense of pleasurable sensations that come from the realization of presence. Sensual pleasures. There are even stories in the, in the, the literature of uh, the heaven worlds in which there are supposed to be worlds in which uh, that are full of particular kinds of sensual pleasures. Places where, in, in different realms where there are things like um, pleasure groves. I don't know what a pleasure grove is, but I... It must be where there's some trees and people with filmy garments. I think the closest I ever came to a pleasure grove was sitting in Ojai listening to Krishnamurti talk in his grove down there. Heaven worlds where people live in houses made of jewels emerald houses, 
places where there's gorgeous music floating through the air. I can't imagine wanting to live in a house made of jewels. <laughs> so maybe it's okay here. <laughs> this morning, uh, just before the 8.30 sitting, I came out of Meta and uh, the building. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> And uh, the sun was out. And it reminded me of home. I have a, at my, in my house, in my garden, there's a row of beautiful eucalyptus trees. And in the winter, the uh, turkey vultures come and live in these trees. And a lot of them. First, when they, I first noticed the turkey vultures in the trees, it kind of bummed me out. You know, it's like, they're not very pretty. <laughs> but year after year, I got used to them. And they get wet in the rains. And when the mornings, when the sun shines, there's my trees, and they're full of turkey vultures spreading their wings to dry, you know. Very beautiful. And I was reminded of that because I came out of Meta and the sun was shining. And did you, did you ever see that movie, um, Nicolas Cage and, uh, oh, I can't remember her name, Angels in L.A. or something like that? Wings of... Hmm? City of Angels, that one. Yes, where uh, there are scenes of the the sunrise and all the angels are standing there looking into the sunrise. Well, that's the scene I walked into out here. Coming into the hall, there were about 20 people standing <laughs> just looking into the sun like my turkey vultures. <laughs> and like the angels in that movie. It was really beautiful to see. Everyone was basking in the light and in the warmth. And I thought, oh, heaven realm sensual pleasure. We're in a heaven realm here. Very nice. This quote from Nasargadat Maharaj has been hanging around in my notes for ages and every once in a while while I'm going through things I pick it up and read it and it seems to relate to everything. It says, Yours may not be the ultimate state. You will recognize that you have returned to your natural state by a complete absence of all desire and fear. A complete absence of all desire and fear. After all, at the root of all desire and fear is the feeling of not being what you are. The feeling of not being what you are. Just like a dislocated joint pains only as long as it is out of shape and is forgotten as soon as it is set right, so is all self-concern 
and symptom of mental distortion, which disappears as soon as one is in the normal state. Very clear, huh? So is all self-concern a symptom of mental distortion, which disappears as soon as one is in the normal state. The second kind of happiness in this tradition is called the happiness of, from concentration. And it comes from a mind that becomes very clear when the attention is drawn from, from sense objects and is uh, focused in a very one-pointed way on a stationary object or an object of attention, concentration. Could be focusing on a mantra, could be focusing on a candle flame in some traditions, a yantra, the breath. Bringing the mind to a quiet repose and becoming absorbed in the, the object clears all of the static. And as James spoke the other night about the heavenly abodes, Brahma Viharas, that kind of that kind of focus, that kind of concentration of the mind, allows us to dwell in those realms of loving kindness, where love is what permeates everywhere and consciously felt, where compassion is the going thing. Joy, sympathetic joy, is what is felt through every cell in the body. Or equanimity, balance in the mind, relaxation, total clarity is the state. That's the kind of happiness that comes from concentration practices, absorption practices. And then there's the third type of happiness, and it's called vipassana happiness. And it's the highest happiness. It's the one in which you get a taste of real freedom. Freedom from the conditioned mind. Freedom from karmic burden. It's the kind of happiness that comes from seeing very clearly into the nature of things, seeing very clearly into how it works, it comes from experiencing the arising and the passing away very distinctly of all phenomena in the world and in the mind. It's a happiness that comes when the mind is made luminous by mindfulness practice. Bear attention. It's when the consciousness shines in clarity. Joseph Goldstein likes to talk about that happiness as like what happens when you polish a crystal goblet and it sparkles with light. 
the happiness of clarity, the happiness of awareness. That kind of happiness also carries within it uh, an absence of point of view, a freedom from the concept, all idea of self. The Buddha gave a short, at one time a short, it said discourse, which was called just the all about that kind of state, in which he described everything in the world in six phrases, everything that we experience as consisting of the eye and the visible objects, the ear and the sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and its sensations, the mind and ideas and mental objects. That's all there is, and that's why I called the discourse the all. From Joseph's book, Experience of Insight. This is the all, which he's describing this this, uh, discourse. There is nothing apart from that. Often the Buddha remarked how the entire world exists within our fathom-long body. Understanding these objects in their sense base is to understand how the six kinds of consciousness with their respective objects are continually arising and vanishing. The knowing of sight and sound, smell and taste, sensations and ideas. Our whole universe consists of a very rapid sequence of hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling, sensations, and experiencing different mind objects. Six objects only. Six kinds of consciousness knowing them. What we are is this continuity of process. There is no one behind it to whom it is all happening. There is no abiding entity of which it can be said, this is I, because each consciousness and its object arise and vanish moment to moment. The happiness that comes from that kind of awareness is said to be the highest happiness, the absence of struggle, the absence of the need to be somebody, the absence of the need to keep creating this self from moment to moment. So, in thinking about happiness and what on the path has really touched me in this context that I've just described of these three happinesses, it seemed clear to me that it would be a good idea to tell some stories, to look back over the last 30 years and remember what experiences actually 
had an effect that lasted up until this day. What experiences really altered me and carried my life in a very sure way toward more and more happiness, real happiness, peace of mind. Now, I thought a lot about this because it's tricky to tell stories like this. We don't do it very much. For one thing, the the inner the stories of inner experience are incredibly personal. There is kind of a taboo about talking that personally in spiritual circles. In fact, in the practice that I first began my work in, we were told not to talk about personal experiences. The danger being that it's it's very possible that the ego can get a hold of that and feel proud of the experience. Like, oh, look what I did. You know? Or in telling it, assume a stance of, of um, having attained something personally. Or there's also... There's also the danger of, uh, in talking to others about one's experience, of creating some kind of um, um, desiring mind or comparing mind, as James was talking about, or like uh, a situation where a story is told and somebody hears it and says, well, I've never had an experience like that. That person must be a better meditator than I am, or... You know, that whole thing of who's further along the path and, and, and who's not doing so well along the path and all that sort of thing, which is really founded in misunderstanding because there isn't any way any of us can tell who's where on the path, actually. We don't have any way of really knowing that information. But it's, it's one of the reasons it's it's kind of tricky to tell stories from the inner adventure. And also, there's a tendency perhaps to exaggerate or romanticize inner experiences and tell, and t- in the process of telling them, not saying it just exactly as it was. So, I think it was St. Thomas who said in wrote somewhere, O Lord, spare me from visions. O Lord, spare me from visions. There's such a a tendency to attach to visions, inner inner openings and inner experiences that are dramatic, and to identify with them, try to make them one's own. But it's definitely true that there is something occurring here in your practice. There is something moving. There is something coming into life moment to moment. There is this river pouring forth into your conscious awareness every moment. And we experience that in various ways. 
You've had experiences of it here. You experience it as body presence. You experience it as waves of sensation, changing patterns of energetic movement. You, you experience it as lights. You experience it as colors. You experience it as voices in the mind. You, you can experience it as visions. Some people have visions. Many don't. Who knows why one person has one experience and why another person has another. We don't know. But it's very, very likely that uh, it doesn't matter very much. That one, one's person, one person's experience uh, is that person's. And each of us has our own way. If you don't have visions... I doubt very much if it holds you back from anything, you know. Or if you don't have major, uh, what Sylvia calls um, bells and whistles experiences. Bells and whistles. If the angel choirs don't sing and the trumpets blow, you know, if you don't have those dramatic, dramatic experiences, it probably doesn't make any difference. Some people do and some don't. So it's important to remember all that in the context of, of this, this subject of talking about what brings happiness, inner happiness, what experiences have come to you that have really filled your heart in a significant way. It's a poem I wrote a long time ago. It's called The Torrent. If you sit very quietly, you will eventually notice a torrent of life stuff pouring toward you, entering into your heart, breaking through the uppermost gates, the uppermost gates, filling all your empty reservoirs, carrying on its foaming crest sure wisdom, heart food, and kinship with all the trees. The silent earth will bear testimony. The sitting body will be the portal, offering its head and heart to be in union with the great mind that thinks all things. There is nothing to build. There is nothing to build. Everything's already in place. So open the sluice gates. Release the contracted heart. And listen carefully, like you would listen for your assassin. Hear the presence of life itself, filling what you call your own, replacing struggle, substituting happiness for fear. That power, that wild river, will rush into all your hidden corners and transform itself to rapture when you see that what has come to visit you is simply everything you are, making you divine, another member of the human race, belonging to the species, everything that lives,
belonging to the species, everything that lives. I remember in, when I was in medical school and studying the neurophysiology of the heart, coming upon some information that was very exciting to me, and it still is exciting to me. I think about this a lot, actually. On the right side of the heart, in the wall of the right atrium, which is the upper chamber of the heart, there is a little collection of cells that's called the sinus node. The sinus node. It's simply a little bunch of, a little bundle of cells located in that wall. It has no neurological connection to anything else in the body. It's just there. And out of that sinus node arises the impulse to beat the heart. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> First time I heard that, I just, I thought about, I was like ecstatic. Oh, there's that little bundle in there and it contains God in our hearts. God lives in our hearts. Every time the heart beats, the impulse comes from in there. Now, that's a mystery, if there ever was one. Another thing I learned in neuroanatomy is that there's a center of little cells in the midbrain that controls breathing. I mean, you breathe because there's an impulse that arises mysteriously in this little center of cells and it travels to the lungs and through the nervous system and you're, you inhale and then you exhale and you inhale again. You're being breathed, literally. It's not just an expression, you see. Our hearts are being beaten and our lungs are being breathed. That's how we come here. How inner experiences, the meditation practice, brings inner experiences in the same way. They just arise and come to you. Who knows why or what? And I'd like to, I'd like to spend some time telling you about a few, if you'll indulge me. A little nervous about doing it, but as, as I look back on these 30 years, these are the ones that I have picked out that I remember that have actually changed me in some way. And the effect still lives. Uh, in, in thinking about this, I realized, well, these experiences that come in practice come out of a context really of suffering, too. We come to this practice because we're looking to be free. And the experiences come out of a context of suffering that has been your personal training. And I thought for a while, well, I guess I'm going to have to tell you about my horrible childhood, you know, or the, the stories, the, the awful stories of stuff that happened, and, and go all through that again. And, and uh, and I, that didn't feel very good. I, mean, I don't think you need to sit here and listen to someone's laments. So I, I decided not to. Uh, so I'm just saying that 
the, the context here is that my, I had a difficult childhood. <laughs> like many of you did, I'm sure. In fact, I know you did. And so it all began for me at quite a, a young age. Um, really very young, but I'm, I'm going to skip to 12 years old when the first inner experience happened that was of significance that I remember very clearly. Because of this difficult childhood, I, I uh, somehow, like Mary, raised herself Catholic. I uh, used to pray a lot. And I, I don't know to whom I prayed. It wasn't Jesus. It was just whoever was in charge. You know? <laughs> and I knew it wasn't me. And I hoped it wasn't my mother. <laughs> So one Sunday, actually it was an Easter Sunday, I, I used to climb up onto a hill. It sounds dramatic, but I used to climb up on top of a hill near my house. And it's an Easter Sunday, and I'm sitting up there on the hill, miserable and sad, my lonely kid, 12 years old. And uh, all of a sudden, the, the sky filled with light, and my body filled with light, and I was kind of transfixed there. Time warp happened, and um, I had this understanding that I was to live my life in such a way to be open enthusiastically to anything that happened. In other words, to embrace all experience. It was very powerful and very moving to embrace all of it, and I understood that message very deeply. And of course, I got up from there and walked back down the hill. And on the way down the hill, I remember distinctly thinking, that didn't happen. You made that up. You, that didn't happen. You just made that up in your mind. And I erased that whole thing for a long time and then started remembering it again in my 20s sometimes. But I, I guess I couldn't, the little 12-year-old just couldn't deal with it, so I put it away and pretended it hadn't happened. But that was, a, that was a beginning toward happiness, the idea that it was possible to live fully. Not only live fully, but possible, but that it was desirable. In fact, it was an order, you know, <laughs> straight from whoever was in charge. <laughs> the next experience that came many years after that that, I, that I'm recalling as being significant was it happened at Esalen Institute when I was in my, my years with uh, Fritz Perls. I was his um, protege. Very wonderful time and uh, incredibly opening time. And he was a uh, a fantastic teacher, uh, I think is some kind of cross between um, a Zen master and um, your worst uncle. <laughs> the, the kind of uncle that always grabs your leg and makes you hurt. You know? <laughs> he, he, was a, he was a rather strange person, but... He were, <laughs> 
he, you know, he, for those of you who don't know, he, he was the, the man who brought, or was considered the father of Gestalt therapy. Um, the, how I got there with him was a whole other story, but I was leaving his house one night and we had just uh, done an evening seminar with a group of people that had been very uh, moving and I had, he had started turning them over to me and I think it might have been my first one that I had led. And uh, I was feeling really, you know, wow, I can do this, good. And I walked out of the house, I remember very clearly, it was a clear night in the sky, and Big Sur sky can be so incredible, and it was full of stars. And I looked up, and all of a sudden, I, my being spread out all over the sky. And I was not only in the body, but all over the sky too. And the next thing I knew, I was on my knees, weeping. And uh, the information, the the the. the understanding that came to me was I, I found my work. This is my work now. I know what to do. It was At the time it was Gestalt therapy. I, I have a direction in my life. There's no question. And I, and I surrendered to that on my knees. And there was something about that surrender that was an, a renunciation. And there's great happiness that comes from renunciation. It was a, a, an offering of myself to the work. and I mean, I had no idea what that meant at the time, but that's what it was. You know, that, and that offering of myself to the work still has validity. It, it still carries me. I mean, it's never, never, ever shaken that intention, ever. And then... Some time later, perhaps a year or so later, I came to a spiritual path, uh, to a spiritual master, and uh, it, it was a, a bhakti, or a devotional path. Just exactly what I needed. I needed a heart-opening path. I needed to worship somebody. I needed to fall in love. I had uh, left um, Fritz uh, and Big Sur to co come to San Francisco to start the uh, Gestalt Institute at his direction, and I uh, fell into a depression. I mean, everything was going too well. I had a material world was was giving me everything. I had a seven-bedroom house with a swimming pool and a tennis court in Middle Valley which I'm sorry I ever sold. <laughs> it would be worth millions today. God, I wouldn't have to work. <laughs> I had this swimming pool, tennis court, three cars, three children. Uh, uh, a, pr a pretty good marriage was happening okay. And... Um, waiting list in my practice. I was doing rolfing in the day and gestalt groups at night and and uh, I got depressed. I really, somehow the bottom dropped out. It wasn't what I wanted, all of that. I was missing the point. And um, there was a house next door. We had just moved into this big house 
didn't know anyone. There was a house next door and had a geodesic dome in the backyard. In, in those days, this was like 67 or 68, a geodesic dome was very chic. It was really like hip. And uh, I thought I would like to meet those people that have the geodesic dome for sure. And, and <laughs> I, I, I don't know how this happened, but in the lowest point of this depression, really, really, really awful time, I, I ended up at a friend's house who wasn't there, and I picked up a piece of paper that was lying underneath a, an end table, and I started reading this piece of paper, and it was a transcript of a talk that uh, the man who was to become my spiritual teacher had given somewhere. And as I was reading it, I heard his voice saying it in my mind. And it was a description of a path that had to do with tuning into inner sound, the sound of the audible life stream, tuning into inner sound, inner life force, like tuning into a radar beam, and then like just coasting home from there on in. All you had to do was listen. So I thought immediately, saved, this is it. And it had a telephone number at the end, if you were interested in this path, call this telephone number. And so I went home and I, I handed this to my wife and she, Alyssa and she read it and she said, oh, that's it, isn't it? She recognized it too. So we called that telephone number. It was the guy with the geodesic dome next to him. <laughs> he had just come back from India. And, and six months later, we were in India with this spiritual master and uh, beginning my meditation life. And uh, my first encounter with him in person was one of the experiences that I remember very, very clearly. It's said that very powerful spiritual masters can alter your, your neurochemistry with a glance. Just one glance. You've heard those stories? Well, I'm living testimony that it's true. First time... He looked into my eyes when it, was, it wasn't for very long. Just looked into my eyes when we met. A flash of silver light went off. Uh, I lost my orientation. I didn't know who I was or where I was or what I was doing there. And uh, my vision came back, and he was already gone. And I'm standing there reeling, and I knew that something had happened to me. And I wasn't so sure it was a good idea because I immediately got paranoid that he was, this man was tinkering with my mind, you know, and I was trapped there. Over time in, that, in the relationship, I developed more and more trust in him and the situation and started doing meditation at his direction. I had a wonderful four and a half months there with him. A lot of things, a lot of stories, but, but, but I'm trying to stick to meditation stories that were really the ones that have to do with happiness. And uh, he's involved in the next one, too. In those days, when we got back home, um, we meditated in closets. <laughs> I swear. Alyssa, ha Alyssa had her closet, and I had my closet. 
and we, you don't get into each other's closets. <laughs> and what we did was we'd sit in the closet, close the door and be in there in the dark and meditate. And we had, we had taken vows to meditate for um, two and a half hours a day at least, 10% of our awake time, or no, 10% of the day. So we were doing two and a half hours of sitting meditation in closets. And um, in the closet, in a lot of ways, I'll tell you, in those days. And um, just as an aside, one time my mother-in-law visited. <laughs> she didn't think a whole lot of me anyway. The first morning she's there, she says to the kids, where are your mother and father? <laughs> the kids say they're in their closets. <laughs> she threatened to take them away from us. She was very worried. In one of those sessions, uh, I'm sitting very, very effortfully making my mantra, doing my mantra, doing my mantra. The mantra was to tune the awareness into the sound. The first the practice was an absorption concentration practice and then absorption in the sound eventually. So I'm sitting there doing my work and all of a sudden the spiritual master appears before me. My eyes are closed. All of a sudden he's standing in front of me the color, I remember so vividly the colors were brighter than colors here. The white was white, shimmering white, and uh, he had on white coals and a white beard, and I, I, I thought, he's going to speak to me. And all he did was laugh. He looked at me and laughed, <laughs> and I, uh, I was kind of disappointed because I wanted him to say something. But I remember vividly this, the light sparkling off of his white teeth when he was laughing. That experience of his visiting like that removed all doubt. From that time on, I've never had doubt about the spiritual path, ever. It just took it away. Well, being without doubt about the path is a very happy state to be in. It just doesn't have any power anymore. A similar experience happened some, uh, some years later. Um, the, the Western guru who used to be called Lavananda, Da Lavananda, or Baba Frijan, he's now Adida, somebody that I have admired over the years. And he's crazy wisdom. He's out there and a little weird. But... Uh, his work is uh, earth-shattering. I mean, he, his, his, his sadhana has created a whole culture around him, and the teachings are beautiful, and his books are beautiful. I wrote the foreword to one, actually. I'm sitting in darshan uh, at, at a very large gathering, He's uh, giving darshan. He's, he's, he had been on a fast for 30 days. He was very thin. 
and frail looking. Actually, he's a robust, round person, but he was very thin and frail looking. He was sitting up in his, his chair and looking very stern. And uh, obviously somewhere something was going on I didn't understand. And I decided to really focus in on him as much as I could. And all of a sudden, uh, whatever it is that I identify with in here went out through the top of my head. And I was very aware of being above my body and out of the top of my head, but my eyes were still closed. And I thought, if you think there, I don't know if that's thinking, but I thought, what would happen if I opened my eyes? And I opened my eyes, and he was right in front of me laughing. Another one was laughing at me. And it, it, not this far away, and actually his body was way up on the, a long ways away on a dais. And then, the next one I want to share with you um, uh, came really through the, the practice of Vipassana. I was doing a, a long retreat in IMS, and uh, in the course of a meditation one day, I had uh, an experience of, of suddenly uh, my body became empty space, and there was nothing happening but little shimmerings of, uh, I don't know if they were sensation or sparks of light, but it was total emptiness except for this shimmering going on. And then uh, there appeared before me kind of like a, a cornucopia. And I saw, I had the experience of seeing everything arising out of nowhere, everything tumbling out of nothing, thoughts, sensations, objects, people, uh, fruits, uh, everything. It was, everything there was was just tumbling out of this space of nothing. It was an experience of um, uh, both constant change, anicca, and it was an experience of no self because there was also the awareness at the time that there wasn't anybody there called me. All of this was just happening. It was a very altering experience. And I was delighted recently to discover in Sylvia's book a description that just about says the same thing. And, and it's so amazing to me that different people can have on this path experiences that seem to be the same kind of experiences. Whenever I sat, this is Sylvia, whenever I sat still with my eyes closed, I felt as if I were vast space filled with sparkles. Quote, sparkles. I had no sense of the pressure of my body sitting and no sense of limbs, just space. Whenever I remembered my real life, it seemed like a story happening somewhere else. I thought, I'm just an energy body floating around. And I think I'm associated with that particular story, but probably I'm everyone's energy body and everyone's story. I thought, I bet this is what people mean when they talk about mystical union. I didn't sleep for days. My sense that I had stumbled into the same energy space as the mystics who wrote Genesis started suddenly with a powerful burst in the center of my forehead. 
I felt filled with light. In fact, saw bright light, all with my eyes closed. I was ecstatic. The phrase, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, arose in my mind. I thought, it's about the beginning of consciousness, not the beginning of the world. I imagined meditators in caves in pre-biblical times having my same experience and thinking, how can I tell this as a story? I want to go on a little further because this is so beautiful. Periods of intense light came and went, and in between my experience was one of vast spacious mind. I felt that thoughts, ideas, even sounds were energy winds that blew through me. I felt them move through as sparkling showers. Thoughts and sounds were indistinguishable from each other. This is what it means, I thought, when it says, spread out the firmament. From time to time, a clear thought, an identifiable perception would arise in my mind, and this, I thought, is all the rest of creation, everything in its particularity. I marveled at how creation was always happening, out of a formless void, out of vast space. Distinct objects, thoughts, perceptions, body sensations would present themselves and then disappear. I thought of the Mahayana Buddhist teaching, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. And I thought of the first line of the Dhammapada, mind is the author of all things. Mostly, I thought, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. It says it. couple more quick ones. A few years ago, this one is the strangest. This one, uh, I mean, how do you, I mean, what do you say about something like this? I'm sitting in meditation, all of a sudden, pulls up in front of me, and my eyes are closed, pulls up in front of me a Greco-Roman soldier in a chariot. <laughs> He's got breastplate, the helmet, curly hair holding the reins. I think there were horses, too. I'm not sure. It's definitely a, a, a chariot driver. He looks at me and says, no, this is, my eyes are closed. He says, my name is Jagatan. I have a message for you. Well, this is telepathically. He said, the message is, and here, here it is, and this, this has really been a, a great joy to me, this teaching. So the message is, human beings are life seeds. Life seeds. Like all seeds, there is an outer husk and shell, the body and the ego. There is also the inner germinal center. He said, the inner germinal center contains life everlasting. And he pointed at me and he said, go there, and was gone. Now this came at a time in my life when I was working a, a lot of fear of death. That comes up every once in a while. And when I was having a lot of trouble with fear of death, and that teaching was a, to me a direct response, inner germinal center. As he said it, I saw a seed I saw the outer husk and shell, the body and the ego. 
fall away, and there was the inner germinal center, that little green place with the sprout sticking up. And I realized, yes, that goes on and on and on. It carries life everlasting. And human beings are life seeds. Go there, the inner germinal center. And isn't that what the practice is all about? Letting go of the husk and the shell so that you can be the inner germinal center, that which is alive in us. Sometime after that, sitting in practice, and all of a sudden there appeared before me a tree, a bush, and it was filled with very, very vividly red flowers, hanging beautiful flowers. And then as I looked at it, simultaneously, all the flowers fell off. And there was nothing left but the branches. That was all. Look back at it now, and it was, it was the introduction to what followed sometime later. But uh, I pondered on that one for a long time. Did that mean death is imminent? Does it mean what? What are the flowers? What does it mean? I finally decided it was just impermanence. It was about impermanence. And then I remembered the branches were still there. So the next one I want to tell you in sequence was the, one, the best one of all, the finest one of all, the one that, that, that brought the greatest happiness, the finest happiness, and it was totally ordinary. It was while I was doing walking meditation, all of a sudden, out of no, I don't even know what happened. I don't even remember when it happened. All of a sudden, everything was perfectly clear, and there was no fear, and there was no desire for anything. In fact, Everything was absolutely just as it is and perfect. It was luminous and shining and ordinary. There wasn't no bells and whistles, just ordinary isness. And there it all was. It all was there. Nothing was gone. Thoughts were there. The body was there. The sun was shining. There was a man across the lawn doing Qigong. I watched him for a long time, so beautiful, his movements. It was the happiness of Vipassana. It was the happiness of everything just as it is. It was the happiness of clarity. It was the one that he talked about in that quote. Yours may not be the ultimate state. You will recognize that you have returned to your natural state by a complete absence of all desire and fear. After all, at the root of all desire and fear is the feeling of not being what you are. Just like a dislocated joint pains only as long as it is out of shape and is forgotten as soon as it is set right, so is all self-concern a symptom of mental distortion, which disappears as soon as one is in the normal state. 
the normal state. So, of course, after all those experiences, like the title of Jack's book, after the ecstasy, then the laundry. So, what does it all mean? Still have worries, still have thoughts about the future, still plan too much, still uh, try too hard, still want to be loved, still uh, have fear that something's going to happen to my children that I don't like. So, oh, blah de blah de blah, all of it. But somehow there is a these all these experiences have created a space around it. There's more room. And my heart remembers that clarity where there's no fear and there's no desire. And I know that it's possible to live that way. I've been given a glimpse of it. I know it's possible. And there is a continual river of sweetness in my heart that I can feel anytime I want now. And for me, that has made the 30 years of practice, totally worthwhile. Totally worthwhile. So I want to encourage you in your practice. Hang in. Be willing to take whatever comes. Open, open to yourself all the time, as often as you can remember. And consider everything that comes to you as a gift from who's ever in charge. <laughs> one last quick one. Rick Fields, a friend of ours, a very lovable and wonderful Buddhist meditator, person, writer, poet, before he died, penned this short poem. 84,000 gates to the Dharma and mine is the best. What a waste. Do your practice. Enjoy your life. And let the world argue and discuss itself to death. Let's just sit for a few moments. 